something that we could enjoy here together today. Uh, so one moment while we uh, get over the technical hurdle here. We're doing this live, folks, just so you know. <laughs> there we go. All right. So that leads us into the question that we ask here today. Who's really in charge here? That's really a question that's good for us to ask in any realm of life in which we live. Who's really in charge here? It's a question that's going to be very pertinent to the characters that we see interacting with Jesus in the passage that we see here today. But just to kind of set our thoughts on that passage, uh, let me tell you of a story that I heard where many years ago there was an aspiring young man who desired to one day be a commander of a battleship. I mean, he made his way into the Navy. He worked his way up as an officer and through his hard work, he finally one day realized his dream when he was given commission of the newest and the most powerful ship, a battleship in the Navy's fleet. And then one stormy night thereafter, as the ship was plowing through the waves of the windy seas, this captain was on duty on the bridge when he spotted a strange light up ahead. Now, he knew his ship's might. He knew how powerful that ship was. He knew that ultimately, if he were encountering any other vessel on the waters of the sea, that that vessel should yield its place. So he immediately ordered his signalman to flash a message of warning to that unidentified craft. The message went through, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. Well, only a moment passed by before another flash of lights came back from that location where ultimately there was another message that came saying, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. Well, now this captain, this captain of this great vessel knew that he was going to take backseat to no one. And so he snapped a new order for a message that should be sent. I am a captain. You should alter your course 10 degrees. Well, the response came back to him once again. I am a seaman second class, but you must alter your course 10 degrees. Well, now the captain was just livid. He was indignant. And so he grabbed that small light with his own hands and he fired off another message that ultimately says, alter course, I am commanding a battleship. To which his tune suddenly replied when the response came back saying, I am commanding a lighthouse. Now that's a captain who learned something in that moment about authority. No matter how much authority he thought he had in that moment, no matter how much authority he thought he had earned in his place, serving in the Navy, commanding this ship, he didn't have enough authority to challenge that immovable object, 
there on the land, that lighthouse. You know, all of us here on earth have some measure of God-granted authority. From the creation of mankind, God has commanded men and women to fill the earth, to subdue it with a God-granted authority over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living thing that moves on the earth we find in Genesis chapter 1. And God furthermore assigns positions of authority within our kind, within mankind. In Romans chapter 13 verse 1, for example, the Apostle Paul describes how every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, Paul says, And those which exist are established by God. There we find a basis for authority. Where does authority come from? It comes from God. Furthermore, the Bible lays out God's plan for leaders, both like in the Old Testament religious system of the Jews, as well as in the New Testament way that the church is formed. And there are leaders that are designed within the home as well. So in the Old Testament, there were For example, the priests who were established to be the leaders of the religious system. A system that was ultimately still alive when we come to Jesus in this passage today. A system which included the high priest and many other ranks of priests under him as they oversaw the various elements of the temple, including the altar of incense, and keeping the gates and managing the various portions of that temple and its worship. And then when we get to the New Testament, after Christ has come, we find that God gives us instructions that pastors are to be called to an accountable authority that shepherds the flock of God. God has ultimately called them to shepherd. And so look within the family. God has placed parents as those who are in a position of authority over their children. He's placed husbands in a position of authority over their families. And every employer functions in the authority over their employees. Commanders exercise authority over their soldiers. Uh, And to this, we could add so many other practical examples, so many other levels of authority that we find in our world, such as teachers or coaches or judges or police officers or babysitters even, or inspectors and a thousand other realms of authority in between. And all of us have certain realms of authority. Some where we are in authority, others where we are under authority. But no realm of human authority ascends to the authority of Almighty God. He has clearly revealed throughout history, throughout the divine revelation that he has granted to us, that he is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the Lord of all. All human authority ultimately comes from him, which means that we must be careful in how we exercise our authority such that we exercise that authority in subjection to him according to his design. All of us must remember that there will always be a greater authority than our own, an immovable authority, like a lighthouse planted 
on the seashore, guiding us in our command of our own ships as we set adrift out at sea. And we find ourselves in trouble when we abuse our authority or when we presume that our authority cannot be challenged. Far too often we find that those who are in authority abuse that authority in a way that ultimately takes advantage of people, a way that ultimately profits themselves. Now, this wasn't a foreign concept to the people of Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, when we encountered John the Baptist preaching a message of repentance back in Luke chapter 7, he ordered their tax collectors to collect no more tax than they'd been ordered to collect. He ordered soldiers to not take money from individuals by force or to falsely accuse others. You see, Jesus, I mean, John the Baptist in that moment was ultimately addressing issues of authority, abuses of authority. And Jesus did the same thing when he came. And we saw this last week. Jesus ultimately comes now to the week when he will die for the sins of the world and he enters into the city of Jerusalem. He enters into the holy city, the capital city of the Jews. And as he goes into that city, he takes a look around the temple the first night of the the day that he comes riding in on the donkey. The next day he comes back and Jesus cleans house. Jesus is dealing with abuses of authority. He's dealing with tables that have been set up to change money, to sell uh, animals for sacrifice. These, both of these practices being uh, practices in which the individuals doing the selling, overseen by the priest, would be taking cut of what was happening from those who were coming to worship the Lord for themselves and becoming very profitable. The priests had this whole system that was set up, abusing their authority. Though they were the supposed representatives of God, they were abusing that authority in such a way that oppressed people who just wanted to worship God. So when Jesus came into that sort of environment, he ultimately came into his home turf and he wrecked the system that they had set up. So when all of this happens, now we're going to encounter these same individuals that Jesus has just wrecked their system. We're going to encounter them now inquiring of Jesus, what's the source of his authority? What right does he have to do what he's done? Now, take that into your level. Take that where you live. Take that into your realms of authority. Think about those areas where you've been granted the authority. Are you wielding that authority well? Specifically, though you may have areas of authority, are you exercising authority in those areas in subjection to Almighty God? Because, see, the the religious leaders in Jesus' day had lost sight of the fact that God was ultimately in charge. So they missed it when God in the flesh stood right before them, right before their very eyes. They missed him because they'd forgotten who was in charge. And there's a lot we can learn from their example as we seek to lead 
within our own lives, within our own realms of authority. Look with me at Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and hopefully you'll see a little bit of what I'm talking about here. Once again, we're going to encourage you, as is normally our practice, wherever you may be, let's stand and we might honor the reading of God's Word and limit our distractions as we read together here. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1. On one of the days, while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question. And you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As we've mentioned, Jesus has now arrived in Jerusalem at this point in his earthly ministry. Last week, we saw him entering the temple, cleaning house, clearing out the abuses. Now Jesus shifts to a mode where he's ultimately teaching, and he's going to continue this until Friday when he is arrested. He's in the temple every day teaching. Jesus has now uh, taken up residence in his home. And throughout chapters 20 and 21, we're going to see him teaching the people, the multitudes there. One of the other gospel accounts tells us that Jesus isn't just teaching and preaching as Luke has now described him as doing, both at the beginning of this passage and at the end of Luke chapter 19. He's not just teaching and preaching the gospel. He's also healing individuals who come. Jesus has set up a shop, and he's working miracles, and he's proclaiming truth that is even beyond those miracles truth that you and I need to hear. And we see here in verse 1 that he's doing these things. And it's probably at this point, either Tuesday or Wednesday of that final week before his crucifixion. Now, after cleansing the temple, Jesus virtually took possession of that same temple. He's virtually moved in. He's going there daily. He's teaching. And then In the evenings, we read in John's gospel that he retreats just a short distance away to the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem to spend the night. Next up, we'll find Jesus ultimately sharing the Last Supper with his disciples before he is arrested, taken to trial, condemned to death, crucified, and buried. Finally, Luke will give us the hope of the resurrection, which we've already looked at when Easter season was here. But before all of that happens, Luke takes us through these series of confrontations with the religious elites who were there in Jerusalem. They seemed to be okay with Jesus doing what he was doing in his ministry so long as he wasn't encroaching on their turf. But now that he's come 
into their place. Now he's coming to their realm of authority. They're going to have some problems. And they're going to try to confront him on multiple occasions. So let's just look at their example and, and ask this question. Are you wielding authority well? And I'm going to specifically give you four questions to help you diagnose that. Are you wielding authority well? Here's the first question. Are you more concerned about status than service? In verse 1, we see that a confrontation is brewing. It's the first of a handful of controversies that Luke gives us in sequence, as I've mentioned. Jesus has taken up the turf of those religious leaders, and they aren't happy about it. And so here, we see specifically that he is confronted by the chief priests and the scribes with the elders. The chief priests, by the way, would be those who were functioning as intermediaries. Descendants of the tribe of Levi. Relatives of Moses, you might describe them. They were from that clan. They were the ones who were the males of that clan who were ultimately serving in the temple, leading the people, serving as intermediaries, carrying out the sacrifices. And and here we have the description of the chief priests. This is the leaders among those priests who would have all been there at this time, by the way. This is the time of the Passover, so people from all around Israel would be coming into the city of Jerusalem at this time. Jews would be coming from all over for this time of celebration. So there would be plenty of those chief priests who were here. Also mentioned are the scribes. The scribes would be ultimately what you might describe as the religious experts in the law. Now, some would, some would say that the group that's referred to as lawyers uh, elsewhere in Luke's gospel are also from this same group. They're the experts in the law. They're the ones who know all about God's word. They're the pros you go to when you have a trouble discovering the interpretation of a passage that you're reading. These were the scribes. And then we also see that there are the elders of the people, elders being those who are either advanced in age or advanced in experience, such that the people recognize them as specific leaders among them. I mean, we've got a group of leaders. We've got a group of people that individuals looked at and said, these are our religious leaders. These are the ones who guide us to our relationship with God. And yet, what are these people concerned about? They're all concerned about their personal status. They're all concerned about this new teacher coming in on their turf and interrupting the good thing that they thought they had going. And so when Jesus comes, their personal status is at risk, and they just don't know how they're going to deal with this outside teacher. They're worried that he's going to diminish their role, their reputation among the people of God. They're worried about protecting that status. And these individuals wanted the praise of people. Ultimately, they wanted the praise of the people more than they wanted the peace of God. I mean, here's Jesus. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's teaching and preaching the gospel. That word translated preaching the gospel means he's proclaiming the good news. That's the good news of the kingdom, the good news that Christ has come to bring peace on the earth. And these people are more concerned about their personal reputation. Jesus had taken deliberate actions, which had shown that he was the Messiah at this point, by the way. He came riding in 
on the donkey's colt, just as Zechariah 9.9 had promised. The people are shouting out, blessed to see who comes in the name of the Lord, as we ultimately looked at a few weeks back in Psalm 118. And these individuals should have seen the signs. They should have seen that Jesus was coming as the Messiah. They should have known what he was here to do. They should have seen his authority on clear display from God. But they wanted the praise of people more than they wanted the peace of God. You know, I just can't help but wonder, is that not the reason why so many individuals, maybe even so many of you, refuse to come to Christ? Uh, They don't want to yield to his authority because they're worried about upsetting their status. Maybe it's the status of a relationship they share with someone in their family or the status they share in a relationship with someone they work with or or someone that they've got a crush on. They won't come to Christ because they're worried about their friends making fun of them. And that's where ultimately we find those who are in this passage today. They're worried about their status. They're worried about The relationship with Jesus disrupting all of that. So they plan to trap Jesus. And they specifically try to do that in this passage today through two questions that they ask, which kind of look like the same question to start with. But if you look at them a little closer, there's a little bit of a distinction there. Both questions are related to authority. One seeks to determine what authority Jesus has to do what he's been doing. Like, what authority does he have? What right does he have to come in and to overturn these tables? The other question they ask is, who has given him that authority? So they're kind of asking related to Jesus' right to do what he's doing, as well as who's delegated that right to him, who's given him these credentials. Both of those questions are here in verse 2. Where we read, they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Now, these questions, we should step back and say, are not bad questions in themselves. These are good questions for you to ask. I mean, if you truly have a heart for discovering the reality behind these questions, friends, you will end up much better off when you find the answer to these questions than before you knew them. But the motivation behind those who are asking Jesus in this passage is all wrong. How do we know that? Well, this same group is called out by Luke just a few verses earlier in Luke chapter 19, verse 47, where we read, the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy Jesus. Still, like if you were asking these questions with an honest heart, it would be a most healthy exercise because determining Jesus' authority and who sent him is a most important sort of question to ask. Because Jesus is the divine son of God, the one sent from God, then he proclaims the truth that leads us to God. He is the true Savior who grants us an opportunity for life. And so basically, when we learn these truths about Jesus, we know Jesus is no joke. We know Jesus is the real deal. We know Jesus is worthy of leaving our life of sin behind. We know Jesus is worthy of leaving behind every possession if he commands us to go. 
So this is an important question to ask, an important question to answer. I hope it's an important question that you've dealt with in your own life. But think about this. To be in the temple, to be serving in this way, to be functioning in a capacity as a religious leader in this day when the Messiah comes to town. I mean, what an opportunity for service is there. You could be the one who leads individuals to the one who can grant them eternal life. Can you just imagine if those priests and those scribes and those elders in this moment had been taking individuals by the hand and leading them over to Christ? They say, come find the one who can give you life. What an opportunity for service. But they're too concerned about status. Now, ultimately, we should at least acknowledge that these religious leaders were more consistent than many self-professed Christians are in our day and age. Now, sure, they rejected Jesus' teaching, and that is nothing that I would ever encourage you to do. But they also rejected him as the divine son of God. And so it made sense within their system that they would reject his teaching, not believing that he was God's own son sent to save the world. What I have a problem with, and maybe what you've encountered, and maybe what makes it so prevalent for individuals to talk about Christians being hypocrites is the fact that so many individuals claim to know the authority that Jesus has, and yet they live their lives ignoring his teaching in inconsistent hypocrisy. Is that you? If you're not living under the authority of Jesus, and let me just say that I want you to do one of two things. The first would obviously be my preference. My preference would be that you would start living under his authority, that you would yield your life into his control, that you would truly trust in him as Lord and Savior. Or maybe you've done that in the past and you've just backslidden to some degree. Maybe you just need to renew your commitment to the Lord. You need to make a fresh start. You need to find yourself like David there in Psalm 51 saying, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Create in me a new heart, O God. My preference would be that you would take off the mask and you would yield your life to his control and you would live with him as your true Lord. Because that's what you need to do. That's what the one who is in true authority is worthy of. But if you're unwilling to do that, then I would encourage you to stop referring to yourself as a Christian because you're diminishing the name of our Lord. Now, look, I'm not saying you've got to live a life of perfection. None of us has done that. None of us is doing that. But if you're going to live a life of obstinate sin where you simply will not yield that consistent, persistent sin over to the Lord for him to deal with it, you simply will not come in remorse, broken over who you are, to seek his forgiveness, then you are putting a bad name on the one who is worthy of so much more than that. The question that comes before Jesus is related to his authority. What right Does he have to do these things? These things specifically being the cleaning out of the temple. Well, you and I know what right he has. He's God in flesh. He's the one who's come to reconcile the world to himself. When he steps into the temple, that's his place. 
If he wants to do some remodeling, then that's what he ought to do. He has the right because he is God in the flesh. But these individuals who are asking this question, as well as asking about Jesus' credentials, would have been, by the way, the individuals who would typically grant those credentials to teachers in the Jewish religion. If a rabbi was going to obtain credentials, it was going to be related to the fact that the Sanhedrin, this gathering of 70 individuals made up of the likes of what we see in this group, chief priests and scribes and elders, This group of 70 individuals would get together and they would approve and they would authorize and they would grant credentials to someone who would then be shown to have the authority. They could step into the temple and teach because they had received their proper approval. And here they are looking at Jesus and they're saying, we haven't given this man any credentials. They didn't have any records of his filing. And yet Jesus goes on teaching in ways and proclaiming the sweet words of the gospel and overturning tables that just disrupts so much of what they know. And here's Jesus, who's ultimately functioning as the servant of all. Like even as Jesus is overturning the tables, you've got to realize that Jesus is serving others. You see, where Jesus was overturning those tables was in an area known as the court of the Gentiles. It's the outside area. So you go through the gates of the temple, it would be the first outside area that you obtain to. That's the area that last week we saw Jesus referring to the Old Testament scripture, which said, my house will be a house of robbers. And then another scripture which said, but you've turned it into a den of robbers or a den of thieves. And so ultimately Jesus is In turning those tables over, he's restoring the court of the Gentiles to what it was supposed to be, a house of prayer for all nations. You can imagine with all the hustle and bustle of religious activity and a religious marketplace consuming that court of the Gentiles, which took up about 10 football fields worth of space, by the way. With all that activity going on, there was little room for the people of all the nations to come and worship the God of creation. But Jesus, the servant of all, comes and he shows that even though he has all authority, even though he has all the rights, all the privileges of God, Jesus comes and shows that his heart is to make space for those who are wandering away. To worship him. As he said earlier in Luke chapter 19, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. This was Jesus' mission. He's come as a servant of all. He showed that in the washing of his own disciples' feet, as we'll discuss here in a few weeks. As he teaches them ultimately that your goal is not to become those who have authority that lords over other individuals. Your goal is to live under the authority of a king who has served you and to exercise his heart in your own authority. And so I ask you, are you wielding authority well by prioritizing service over status? Because see, here, if, if we're not careful, even in the church, we find ourselves slipping into a wrong sort of thinking, that things a lot like these Jewish leaders were thinking. We, like whether we're pastors or teachers or leaders or volunteers or just plain visitors, any of us can forget that the church belongs to Christ. The church is His church. It is not our church. 
Who deserves the greatest benefit from the existence of the church? Even if that church is you sitting in your living room right now, it's a redeemed child of God. Who deserves the greatest benefit of the church? It is Christ. He is the one who deserves it. And yet too often, Christians start to look at the church like it belongs to them. And so they move into the sort of mode which seeks to protect to preserve what they perceive to be their power and their positions rather than serving the living God. And you know, and some folks kind of come to church with the expectation, maybe even the demand, that they're going to get something from church without any thought whatsoever as to what they're going to contribute to the one who owns the church, the one who deserves all the glory. Friends, this is Jesus's church. More than you ought to expect this church to meet your needs, you ought to be offering your service in the church to bring glory and honor to his name. Churches that lose sight of this truth, in essence, end up getting rid of God so that they can protect their own interests. So when new people are reached or when new opportunities are available, those sorts of individuals hold on to what they have and they growl or they hiss at anyone who comes near and threatens to take their seat or their position or who ultimately would alter their style. Let us beware of this attitude. This attitude we see in the religious leaders is an attitude which our own hearts is prone to pursue. It lurks beneath the surface of every one of our souls. Are you more concerned about status and service? That's the first question to ask if you want to know if you're wielding authority. Well, here's the second. Are you striving to subjugate others or submit to God? You see, that's the Pharisees' problem. They're trying to subjugate others. They're ultimately trying to diminish Jesus in his teaching so that they can continue to have everyone under their authority. They want the sole place of authority. And ultimately, we should know that things are going wrong when you're subjugating others without shepherding God's possessions. As a matter of fact, back in Ezekiel chapter 34, God had called out the abuses of the nation of Israel. He called out those who were supposed to be the shepherds of his people because they were not shepherding the people. They were not helping those who were brokenhearted. They were instead eating the fat themselves. They were clothing themselves in the wool. They were ultimately slaughtering the sheep without feeding the flock, God tells through the prophet Ezekiel. And so many wrongs God called out on those shepherds of Israel who were not shepherding his flock. Ultimately, God resolves and says in Ezekiel 34, verse 9, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and deliver them. 
Friends, do you see? The good shepherd, Christ Jesus, has come as God on this mission to seek after those sheep who were lost and wandering astray, to rescue them from this sort of false religious system that said you could do it all on your own, but you're really not going to be good enough because we're going to keep you in this perpetual sacrifice system that will show you time and time again that you don't measure up. And Jesus comes and says, look, though you don't measure up, I do, and I'm going to stand in your place. Like that's the hope of the gospel that we find here, that God himself comes to feed his sheep. He comes to rescue them from individuals who are leading them astray like these religious leaders. And these Pharisees, they needed to reconsider a more important question. Like they were asking the question about Jesus' authority, but they hadn't dealt with a more, in question, more important question in their own lives. Because that question, that question they should have been asking, the question that Jesus directs them to now is a question that ultimately causes them to consider the truth standing before their eyes, the true authority of Christ that they've asked about. And ultimately, uh, you know, Jesus shows them that it's, it's not enough to know about his authority It's not enough for you to know about Jesus' authority. It's not enough for you just to know that he's the Lord over all. It's not enough for you to know that he commands the winds and the waves and they obey him. It's not enough for you to know that he has authority if you have not yielded your own authority to him as Savior and Lord. You see, it's not enough for Jesus to be Lord if he's not your Lord. The way Jesus phrases the question here, he gives only two possible conclusions for these Jews who are here interacting with him. And he asks them about the baptism of John. The baptism of John, by the way, was the baptism that John the Baptist had ultimately uh, established in his ministry practice. He came as the forerunner of Christ. He came as the last prophet of the Old Testament. He came as the one who was saying, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So as John the Baptist came, as he's preaching, as he's calling people to prepare the way for the Lord, he takes them into this practice of baptism, which Jews, to this point, had not been baptized. The only exception would be Gentiles that had converted to Judaism, and that was a display that, hey, we're ultimately washed of who we formerly were as we now convert into being Jews ourselves. But no self-respecting Jew before this time was going to show, hey, I've been wrong. Something needs to change about me. I need to repent of who I am. I need to come to Christ, who ultimately John points forward to. And yet, John gives the question here to these individuals who have already rejected Christ. They've already decided that they will not believe that John the Baptist, who pointed to Christ, was a prophet for him. And so Jesus asks them a question. So it says in verse 4, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? There's two options there. Either the baptism of John was from heaven, meaning ultimately it was from God, or it was from men. You see, if they took time to deal with that question on a personal level, then they would have answered their own question about who Jesus was because John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet, these Jews 
had not recognized that. They had not dealt with that on a personal level. They had rejected John's ministry. And so here they were rejecting Christ and not knowing the source of his authority. Now, Jesus didn't owe these religious leaders an explanation, by the way, when they come confronting him. The word which says they confronted him literally means they got in his face. As they're standing there in close proximity to him, they're asking him about his authority. Jesus didn't owe them an explanation. They were out of their realm of authority. They were face-to-face with one who outranked them. And, you know, some people that we talk to even here and now seem to have that sort of mentality that Jesus owes them an explanation for the experiences they faced here on earth. Like some people, to talk to them, they think about heaven, and when they think of heaven, what they're thinking of is the opportunity when Jesus is going to have some explaining to do. Like that's when I'm going to get the answers for everything that he's been hiding from me to this point. That's what some people seem to have the mentality of. But friends, God reigns in heaven. He doesn't owe you an explanation. He doesn't owe you anything. If he gives you an explanation, it will be by his grace. You're not going to heaven to boss Jesus around because Jesus doesn't owe you an answer. But friends, listen to this. Jesus does offer you, through his grace, the realities that you need to know. He does offer you his truth. And so in the midst of this challenge... These religious leaders ultimately show that they're hanging in limbo. They won't come to a decision. We'll look at that here in just a moment. They won't deal with the issue of who John the Baptist was, which meant that they were hanging in limbo likewise about who Jesus was. They were hanging in limbo about determining his source of authority. They would not submit to God. Friend, I hope you're not there. I hope you're not hanging in limbo still waiting like for some greater revelation, waiting for God to prove himself in a greater way than conquering the grave, than ultimately changing the fate of all history. I hope you're not waiting for something greater than that. I hope you're not hanging in limbo when Jesus has shown you all that you need to know about his authority. And let me just say, like, this isn't just a message for people who aren't in church. Like, we, we look at something like this and we tend to say, that's right, y'all need to get your tails in church. Way, way we tend to think a lot. But the reality is here, these individuals that Jesus is speaking to, like, they were as regular as regular could be in their religious activities. And those religious activities were tied to the one true God. Like, this is a system he's established. Now they've abused it, they've distorted it in so many ways, but they're part of what God had designed originally. And yet in their day, they were as lost as lost could be. And like that's a danger for all of us. I think Satan would find no greater pleasure than that, that we would be engaged in a church, that we would be regulars, that we would be part of the normal crowd, and yet still never having dealt with this issue of his authority, who he truly is, how he should be the Lord of our lives. And so don't find yourself there. Don't be like these religious leaders. Are you striving to subjugate others or submit to God? 
That's the second question to ask if you want to know if you're wielding authority. Well, here's the third. Are you relying on your own reason or God's revelation? Now, when these individuals wanted to set a trap for Jesus, these religious leaders, they ultimately found themselves in a trap themselves. Because Jesus turns the tables on them. He turns the question back on them. He makes them deal with the question on their own. And though they wanted to turn the people against him, he showed them that they were trapped within their own pride, within their own indecision, and then within their own fear of man. Now, they would have been better off mocked and defrocked and trusting in Jesus if they had ultimately ended up following him than they were here and now in their indecisive state with this truth concealed from them. And they ultimately, they, they get together and this is like this little holy huddle that happens here amongst the Jewish leaders that we find here in, in verses 5, 6, and 7. Like they're, they're trying to think through the options. You know, they, I can see them kind of huddling together here within the temple. All right, guys, which way are we going to go? Jesus is asking us this question. Baptism of John, is it from heaven or is it from man? And they reason among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why did you not believe him? Like there's this one option. We can acknowledge that John was from heaven. I mean, it seems pretty evident in the things that happen. But, you know, we rejected him when he was still on the earth. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 7, we read the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purposes for themselves, having not been baptized by John. They rejected it. They were not willing to do it. They weren't going to yield themselves to this sort of baptism. They weren't going to repent. That would have been an admission that they were outside of the covenant people of God. And so they would not confess that they were not holy. This would have been the defrocking, the removing of their authority. No way they would have done that. And so their answer ultimately becomes that John is not of God. He is of men. That's what they determined back in Luke chapter 7. That's the first first option they kind of consider here in this holy huddle. Secondly, they say in verse 6, but if we say from men... All the people will stone us to death. Like, what are they concerned? Like, if if you truly believe this truth that that John the Baptist is not from God, then why not say it? Well, the reality is they were too concerned about people harming them. Because all the people were convinced that John was a prophet, we read here. So what do they do? They answered and they said they did not know where he came from. This kind of reminds me of like when I was a kid growing up, used to play checkers with my grandfather, my dad's dad. And uh, he had worked many years for AT&T, and I'm pretty sure they had a checkerboard in the AT&T break room, and they spent a lot of time around that checkerboard because my grandfather was a whiz at checkers, and he took maximum delight in defeating his grandchildren in the game of checkers, Okay. And I can remember many of these sorts of situations where ultimately I would look at the board, I'd look at the layout of those checkers, and I, and I'd look at my options, and every option, every move I might take was a jump for him. And it was just for me a matter of determining what's going to cause the least damage. That's, that's here. That's where the religious leaders are in this passage. They're at the point where they realize there's, there's a loss that's coming. How are we going to minimize that loss 
And this wasn't a calculation of truth versus error. This is a totally pragmatic sort of decision that they make. They wanted to save their own skin. And so they refuse to confess either what's really on their hearts or to go with what seems to be the evident conclusion. They've made up their minds already, but they lack courage to speak up and let the crowds around them know. They're too worried about losing their own place, losing their own authority, losing the rule and reign over their own lives. What will the people do if we say this or that? That's their prime concern. And so this discussion becomes merely pragmatic. And friends, we should never get to the point where we are a pragmatic-only sort of church. Like we don't make decisions about the content or how we organize our service purely for the fact that we want to bring more people in here. Because look, we could build a great social club. But we don't want a club. We want a follower of, of Jesus. We want a body that's gathered together to be devoted to him. We want a church. We don't want just a mass gathering. And so we should, we should never find ourselves just living in a pragmatic mode that says we're going to do whatever makes the most people happy. Because you can build a, a really big quote-unquote church that way. But my friends, it is of no value. We need a body that is devoted to the one who has given all for us. And, you know, ultimately being outed as wrong, being outed as a fool, being outed as someone who doesn't know what they're talking about is not the worst thing that could happen to you. Refusing to acknowledge your wrong, refusing to receive God's coverings for your wrong, that would be much worse. And that's where these religious leaders find themselves. But, you know, like at least there was a chance that they might die. Like they really, these, this crowd was so volatile. We'll see how quickly they turn on Jesus here in a, in a few days as we get deeper into the study. I mean, there really was a chance they would lose their life if they came out and said, we don't believe John the Baptist was a prophet. But, you know, how often do those of us who claim to be Christians refuse to speak the truth for something even less than that? Like, we refuse to say what we believe because we're worried we might hurt somebody's feelings. Or we might, you know, make somebody upset with us. That's, that's not a good place for us to be, friends. Are you relying on your own reason or relying on God's revelation? That's the third question to ask if you want to know if you're wielding authority well. Here's the final one. Are you willing to, to change your course for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to change your course for the cause of Christ? Ultimately, Jesus saw in these religious leaders that they were not willing. And so he said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They wouldn't answer his question. They didn't deserve an answer from him. And you know, ultimately, there's a general principle here that's good for us to consider. If we don't act on the truth that's been revealed to us, then we shouldn't expect more truth to be given to us. And that leads to a question for you. How many times have you heard the gospel truth? Are you still rejecting that truth? 
Because there will come a time when the Lord will say, I have no more to say to you. And let me just urge you, don't let that happen to you. Don't let yourself be where these religious leaders ended up. Where Jesus says, I have nothing more to say to you. At this point, they are essentially condemned. The late Bill Clem was one of Major League Baseball's best known and most powerful umpires. When he was behind the plate, he made it clear to everyone that he was completely in charge of that baseball field, of everything that happened near him. Everything that mattered, Bill Clem knew was within his realm. In one important game, it was the ninth inning, and the batter hit the ball to left field. The runner on third came home with the potential of scoring the winning run. You can imagine how important that run was in that moment for this crowd. And the catcher crouched to make the tag, and as he did, the runner and the catcher and the umpire, all three of them went tumbling as they collided into the dirt. Now, from one dugout, you can imagine the the players were screaming, he's safe, he's safe. In the other dugout, they were shouting, he's out, he's out. And the fans in the stands were going wild, shouting one thing or the other, he's safe or he's out. Well, in the midst of all that confusion and noise, Bill Clem stood up. He looked directly into the stands. He raised his fist and he exclaimed, he ain't nothing till I've caught it. Friends, This is the truth. If we're going to acknowledge who Christ truly is in his authority, like we're nothing until he's caught it. And yet this is the opportunity he extends to you. He offers you the opportunity to be called the sons and daughters of God Almighty. He offers you the opportunity to be called his bride, the church. Not by some Uh, miraculous work that you've done, not by deeds of righteousness, not by getting your act together, not by by living a life that's approving to him, but ultimately by coming to him in faith. This is the heart of Christ. He's come to bring the rescue that you need, and he offers to call you forgiven. He offers to call you his servant, his child, his bride. Like, friends, you're nothing until he calls you that. And yet he offers everything to you. And so we invite you now just to share in a time of prayer, maybe right where you are, let's bow and just call out to the Lord in these moments. Lord, all of us are in various realms of authority. You've granted that to us. But if we're honest, Lord, Far too often we tend to use that for our own selves, for our own glory, for our own satisfaction, and not for the one who's granted all that authority, not for the one who stands as the firm foundation that shall not be shaken, who rules and reigns over all. So, Father, help us to examine our own lives where maybe we've gotten a little bit out of whack in terms of the... um, authority that we're striving to exercise. And God, if there's anyone who's tuned in right now from wherever they may be, who's ultimately coming to acknowledge that they've never yielded the authority of their own lives to you, 
God, I pray you'd draw them by the power of your spirit. I pray you'd help them to know that Christ has come as the one who, though he had all authority, he still came to the cross. God, I thank you that you sent your son to bear the penalty that we all deserve. I thank you that because Jesus died in condemnation, I don't have to. And God, I pray you'd reveal that truth to anyone who's tuned in listening now. And Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would draw individuals to you such that they might acknowledge the rightful authority you deserve. And friend, if that's you listening right now online, let me just invite you to pray a little prayer like this, yielding your life to Christ, saying, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know uh, that my sin creates a separation with you. I know that I deserve your wrath. And yet I pray, God, that you would show me mercy instead. I pray that you would extend your grace to me. And so knowing that Christ has come, knowing that Jesus has died in my place, I give my life to you now. And I cry out saying, save me, Lord Jesus. I turn away from my sin. I turn to you. Save me, Lord Jesus. Friend, if that's your heart, I want you to know that Jesus rose from the dead to show you that he is the way. You can be saved through him. So yield your heart, yield your life to him, and you'll find life in the one who grants authority forevermore. Friends, ultimately what we find is that when we lay our own authority in the dust, when we take up the authority that Christ grants to us, we find something so much better than we would have obtained on our own, ruling our own lives. So I hope you're found there. Let me just encourage you, if you're tuning in today and you've made a decision of some sort, please go to our website, NVF. 